Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Peter Singer, who is Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. He works mostly in practical ethics and is best known for animal liberation and for his writings about global poverty. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be talking to you. Yeah, thanks for doing this early in the morning in Melbourne. Um, so, so I want to start in uh, possibly a slightly different uh, point, and we want to talk about a lot of different things you have done all through your career. Uh, but you have co-edited a text of John Stuart Mill's on utilitarianism, uh, and I guess it's coming out. You say it's coming out next month. Is it already out, or is it just coming out? Uh, no, it's coming out in July. It is almost in July. I'm not quite sure what date in July, but uh, Norton wanted to bring it out in July so that it could still be used for courses beginning in North America in September. Okay, okay. So utilitarianism, um, and, and you know, it's a common theme in many of the work that you have done. Uh, so, so how do you define utilitarianism in, in, in common terms, uh, Peter, for the audience? Uh, utilitarianism is the view that the right action to choose of any actions open to you is the action that, as far as you can tell, will have the best consequences. Or put more technically, the action that has the highest expected utility, because obviously the probabilities of any particular consequences will vary. So you have to discount the outcomes by the chances that you will achieve it. Uh, the other thing that should be said is when utilitarians talk about best consequences, they mean best consequences in terms of the well-being of all of those affected by the action. So, you know, the classical utilitarians talked about happiness and the prevention of suffering or misery, pleasure or pain. Uh, you can think of well-being in different ways, but if we just say well-being, that's a good general term for what utilitarians are talking about and they do mean all beings affected so that includes of course all humans living now 
but it will also include future humans insofar as we can predict how our actions will affect them. And very importantly, it includes other sentient beings who are affected by our actions. So any beings who can experience pleasure or pain, uh, their pleasures and pains count in the calculation as well. Yeah, so it's sort of an aggregate metric, isn't it? So if you look at the system as a whole, and if you have an objective function to, to maximize uh, utility or minimize pain, it's sort of an aggregate measure, right? So uh, I haven't read your books uh, <laughs> yet, Peter, but I, I listened to some of your talks and you know, I was thinking, so suppose I measure aggregate pain in the world today, and you know, if we have sort of an external observer, like um, like an extraterrestrial, looking at some sort of an aggregate pain measure for the world, uh, do you think that is increasing or declining? That's really that's such a huge question. It's very difficult to answer. Um, so I would say, firstly, if we focus on human beings um, and we think about that, I would say it's declining. Um, the aggregate of pain is declining um, because uh, I think those who are worst off are probably those who are in extreme poverty. And the number of people in extreme poverty has been falling um, over the last uh, few decades. Um, it probably didn't fall in 2020, uh, maybe hasn't fallen so far in 2021 because of COVID, but um, there was a, a steady downward trend for many years before that. And I expect that will resume once we get over COVID. Uh, so, um, uh, and you know, other, other indices like increasing literacy and education and so on, um, are significant here. Now, they're not the only things that are significant. It would be good to measure, for example, whether depression is increasing or decreasing because that's a major factor in pain and suffering. Um, but I don't know that we have good figures on that. Uh, but the other thing is, I said, we're, uh, if we're talking about human beings only, if, as utilitarians do, we include non-human animals, then the huge expansion in intensive farming, which has occurred because of the rise in meat consumption in many Asian countries, China uh, most of all, and the fact that this uh, desire to consume more meat and animal products has been met by intensive farming with very low animal welfare standards. Um, that's a big factor because there's something like 74 billion animals raised and killed for food each year, almost 10 times the world's human population. And the majority of them are in factory farms and living pretty miserable lives. So does that outweigh the increase in, uh, increase in well-being by the reduction of poverty and uh, prevention of poverty-related diseases? That's, that's a very difficult question to, to weigh up these quite different forms of, of pain and suffering. But it's, it's possible that it does. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Peter. You know, I talk to a lot of scientists. I, lo I talk to a lot of economists. And lately, I've been talking to a lot of philosophers, even though I know nothing about philosophy. Not that I, I know anything about science or economics, uh, for that matter. Um, but your arguments appear more scientific 
and economic uh, to me, at least, um, at least to my perspective, than philosophy. And so, um, in the grand scheme of things, if we believe, you you said maybe hundred billion animals, maybe there's a trillion fish in the sea. Uh, we seem to be catching and eating them all, um, and they all feel pain at some level. So. Is it reasonable to assume that, um, that the trend that we are on, at least on, a, on an aggregate basis, appears to be sort of increasing pain? And I talk to a lot of life sciences, researchers, uh, neuroscience and other areas. And what I hear from scientists is that, look, we increase lifespan by 10 years. Uh, but they don't talk about really the quality of life. Uh, and we know in the U.S., for example, we spend maybe 80, 90 percent of the cost in the last uh, five to 10 years of somebody's life. And so, so, so you know, uh, just just humans itself, it's unclear to me that we are increasing, increasing happiness or decreasing pain. Uh, do you have a sense of that? Uh, so for humans themselves, um you know, I, I think, you know, I, I still think probably we are. I think that um, bringing modern medicine and better nutrition and, uh, you know, vaccinations and so on, preventing diseases um, probably outweighs uh, some of the other things that, that you've referred to. Uh, it's it's not easy to know. As I say, this is a, such a vast question. Um, it's It's extremely difficult to work out how you compare these different pains and pleasures. Uh, and, you know, there, there could be arguments that despite the improvement in material standards of living, uh, the stresses of modern life are such that people are not happier. I've seen surveys saying that, you know, although obviously China has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty, but a lot of people say they're not happier than they were when they were living in a more rural life in the village. They were much poorer. Um, but they had stronger sense of community, for example. So some of those things may be really important. And that's why I can't give a definite answer on this. I'm guessing as much as anybody else would be, because we need to have those interpersonal comparisons of utility. And we don't really have good techniques for measuring that yet. We can ask people how satisfied they are with their lives. Um, but you know how we weigh up those different answers to that question is is also something that we we haven't really got a, a good method for doing. Yeah, so so you know I get the sense that when we look at average numbers in terms of lifespan, in terms of people living in extreme poverty and things like that, we get some positive trends in them. But it doesn't look like to me, at least, that. Uh, I, I should say it's unclear to me that we are actually improving things. So, so, so when we, you know, when I talk to scientists and economists, they are all very optimistic. Scientists are extremely optimistic that things are really improving. You know, we are curing diseases. We are, you know, keeping people alive longer um, number of years. Um, but, you know, in some sense, are we... Are we sort of fooling ourselves, you know, from an aggregate metric perspective? 
Well, um, it's not only the science uh, that is relevant here. It's also what people are able to choose for themselves, what they want. So you, you referred to keep, keep, keeping people alive longer. But the question is, do people want to be kept alive longer um, in that state? Now, until quite recently, nowhere in the world could people really choose, or at least legally choose, to end their lives in a, a humane um, uh, way uh, if, they were, if they were ill and you know, doctors were keeping them alive. But uh, that's something that has changed over the past few decades, that more and more countries allow either voluntary euthanasia or uh, medical assistance in dying so that people have more choice about how long they want to live. And that seems to me to be a clear gain in terms of reducing pain and suffering because what's, what's the point of forcing people to stay alive um, when they're, particularly if they're terminally ill or incurably ill, and they judge that their condition is one that they would rather not be in, they would rather not exist at all than be in that condition. So, um, you know, that's, that's not a scientific gain. It's a, an ethical gain, I would say, um, that uh, the argument in favour of uh, allowing doctors to assist their patients to die under certain conditions, of course, with safeguards, um, that that is now increasingly accepted. And that's something that I see as a, a gain in terms of utility. And, and there are many other social reforms that we can think of in, in that sense as well. Obviously, uh, allowing women greater equality, allowing them more choice as to how to live their lives. Um, that I think is, a, is clearly a gain. Uh, allowing people to express their sexual preferences um, if they're if they're gay or if they um, you know, have some other uh, abnormal sexual inc inclinations that uh, don't harm others, that consenting adults can take part in, um, you know, again we we used to repress that, uh, and I'm sure that was a cause of great misery for some people. Uh, now we're at least in many parts of the world we're much more open about that. So there's a whole lot of social changes as well, um, ethical changes that I think are on a in a positive direction um, and, and need to be considered in trying to decide this big question about whether the aggregate is, is going up or down. Yeah, you know, so uh, I wasn't going there uh, first, but, you know, so sometimes I feel that incrementalism from a policy perspective um, uh, this this might be one area where Peter, we might have some differences. Or we, <laughs> I would love to debate with you on this. Uh, and and most areas, I think, you know, I grew up in South India. I grew up as a Catholic in South India. I came to the U.S. to go to graduate schools. I consider myself to be agnostic. So most of the areas that you talk about, I think, uh, we will have um, uh, agreement. But incrementalism, you know, you talked about sort of making policy more practical and realistic. I sometimes feel, you know, life is too short for in incrementalism. Um, you know, if you find something something wrong, we have, to, we have to tackle it. We cannot just say, well, in 50 years, things will be better. Well, I don't think we should just say in 50 years, things will be better. I think we should do things to make them better. And, and that's what I've been doing 
all my life. I've been advocating change, uh, change in the area we just talked about, um, giving people more autonomy as to uh, how they die. But, um, you know, perhaps on a larger scale, change in terms of assisting people in extreme poverty um, uh, you know, when, when, when we are relatively affluent and comfortable. I've been arguing since the, uh, my first article on this was published in 1972, that uh, we ought to be doing more for people in extreme poverty. And I founded the organization, The Life You Can Save, to help people to do that, to find the most effective charities uh, that they can contribute to or support that will give them the best value for their donations in terms of assisting people in extreme poverty. Uh, I've also uh, obviously written animal liberation and, uh, and work with animal organizations to try to improve conditions of animals. So I'm certainly not saying, you know, well, don't worry, in 50 years things will be better. I'm saying we must push for changes and improvements. But, but, but I'm still an incrementalist in the sense that um, I don't believe that it's possible to have a kind of revolutionary transformation of all of these issues. Um, you know, many utopians of the past have thought that there's something that links all of these things and we need to do something that will produce a radically different society. But we haven't really seen any of those attempts uh, come to... Uh, a successful transformation. We've we've sometimes seen revolutionaries take over countries. Um, obviously, the largest example was the in Russia and the formation of the Soviet Union and then the transformation of many other countries into communist countries. But they have not produced the utopia that um, people were hoping for, the sort of society that Marx wanted, where everyone would produce according to their ability and uh, receive according to their need. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that it's, we, we have to be incrementalists. We have to make peaceful reforms along the way. I don't really see that uh, there's a, another strategy that's likely to be successful. Yeah, I know. So, so you you had mentioned before in, in one of your talks that you know we had a great president uh, who left just a few months ago, uh, Donald Trump. Um, Brexit decision. So the the larger question would be, will we will we get these types of issues happening, regardless? You know, it is a is it a property of the system that you know, Donald Trump might return in 2024, regardless of what we do, uh, you know, uh, in which case the strategies one needs to pursue are quite different. Well, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, let's, if we just focus on how can we best prevent Trump returning in, in 2024, um, one answer would be, to become active in the democratic political process in the United States and try and persuade as many people as possible not to vote for Trump or Trump supporters. Um, and the alternative might be to say, well, we need to overthrow the democratic system um, so that we can est establish uh, good government and um, keep Trump and Trump supporters out. But, but if you, attempted that strategy, you're essentially saying that uh, civil war is better than the chances of 
using the democratic channels. Uh, and I think that could be a catastrophe, um, both in the sense that a lot of people could get killed clearly in this civil war, but also um, that there's no guarantee that uh, the people that I regard as the good guys would win. Um, in fact, it's quite possible that the Trump supporters have more guns um, sitting in their homes than the, than the anti-Trump people. So uh, I don't think that that's an answer to, you know, how do we best ensure that uh, we don't have another term of office of President Trump? Yeah, so, so let's go into um, a couple of your books. So, so the, the, the first one, so the latest one in the series of things that you have written is Why Vegan? That, that's the latest book, right? Uh, it's the latest book that I've written, yes. I did edit uh, an edition of a very ancient novel called The Golden Ass by Apuleius, um, which came out uh, after Why Vegan. But um, I edited it and abridged it and wrote an afterword to it. Uh, about why I think it's a really interesting and important early novel. Um, but um, no, I didn't write it. So yes, Why Vegan is the most recent book that I've written. Yeah, so, so we can call, uh, talk about The Golden Ass. I find that really fascinating. So um, you say this is sort of the first novels that we know existed, right? Like from uh, second century? Uh, That's right, from, from the second century of the common era. So. Uh, written under the Roman Empire um, at the time of, uh, say, Marcus Aurelius when uh, he was emperor, perhaps. Um, uh, yeah, it's really written in Latin, um, but by an African, actually. Uh, Apuleius uh, was born in what's now Algeria and uh, seems to have spoken some of the indigenous languages of that area and then have learnt both Latin and Greek. Uh, and travelled extensively in the Roman Empire at the time. So we get a remarkable picture of uh, life under the Roman Empire in the second century. But the reason that I was particularly interested in it was that um, it's about a man who is interested in magic and uh, the magic goes wrong and he gets turned into a donkey. So you get this picture of the Roman Empire from the point of view of a donkey um, with a lot of empathy for the donkey uh, and a lot of accounts of how the donkey is mistreated. Um, I mean, it's not sort of a horror story. It's kind of a comic tale in a way. It's it's, it's a, a bawdy uh, adventure story. Often you think the donkey is about to get killed and that will be the end, but the donkey survives. Um, uh, so it's, it's fun and I like it for that reason. But of course, I do also find it remarkable that in this period of the Roman Empire, when of course, one of the big public into forms of entertainment was watching uh, animals being forced to fight each other or to fight gladiators in the Colosseum in the, in the Roman arenas. Uh, that uh, here's an author who has this remarkable empathy for animals. Yeah, so um, I, I haven't read the book, uh, Peter, but I got a sense of this. So, um, so he dabbles in magic. He turns into a donkey. And his, uh, his whole perspective from that point on is a donkey's perspective, right? So um, how, how, does he, how does he live? How, how is he treated? How is he mistreated uh, fundamentally? And really a donkey's life in the Roman era, right? And it, it, it basically teaches us a lot of, lot of different things, I think, how, how humans may have lived then and perhaps how humans may have evolved since then. Yes, it, it is really interesting. And uh, uh, there are many respects in which we 
can identify with the motivations of the Romans. As I said, there's there's a, a fair amount of sex in it, and often that's what the donkey is observing in terms of you know the adulterous relationships of the people who own the donkey, uh, the donkey who the, the donkey finds out about, um, and and what happens. So you know these kinds of jealousies and so on. Uh, I think people can readily identify with today. Um, the occasional sadism is unfortunately still around in regard to treatment of animals, but much more there's simply a, a, a element of, of brutality and of exploitation of the animals. Uh, so at one point the donkey gets sold to a miller and uh, the donkey's job, together with other donkeys and horses, is to turn the millstone to grind the, the wheat into flour. Uh, and it's, it's basically like a, a factory, except the labor supply is, is from the animals. And they walk round and round all day in circles um, and turning this millstone. And then they get barely enough rations to keep them going to be able to do it tomorrow. And the other really interesting thing about this particular episode is that there are human slaves there as well, who are also forced to work. They don't provide the labor power, but they uh, are forced to work in various other ways and, and they force the donkeys to work. So we get this picture of uh, slavery in the Roman Empire. Uh, we get the picture of uh, the way the animals are treated. And it's not that different really from the factory farms that we were talking about before, where the animals aren't supplying the labor power, but they're also just cogs in a machine to produce meat or milk or eggs. Uh, and so that's one of the things I say in my essay in the afterward to the, to the book, that if we ask ourselves how much have we advanced in terms of our treatment of animals as compared to the Roman Empire, well, we, we have advanced in some ways, but if we take into account this vast unseen number of animals right now confined in factory farms leading pretty miserable lives, you couldn't, you couldn't say that we inflict less suffering on animals as a whole than the Romans did. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a sophisticated view in some sense because it's really uh, sort of portraying a class system. Donkey being at the, at the bottom, maybe human slaves on top of the donkey and then, you know, the rulers uh, above the, the human slaves sort of, uh, sort of a system, right? And, and we had that... Um, today. Um, I don't think we have progressed a lot more than that. Yeah, the, the concept remains exactly the same, don't they? Uh, yes, in many respects. I suppose we, we, we don't officially or legally have slaves, but of course we know that uh, many people's situation is scarcely better than slavery. Um, that's true. Um, and we also have, uh, you know, because perhaps Apuleius was from part of the, what we, the Romans might have thought of the colonies, he was not a Roman. Um, you also get this view of the Roman soldiers um, who are ruling the provinces of the Roman Empire and the way they treat not just the animals, but also the local inhabitants. Um, particularly, there's an, at one point, the donkey is owned by a market gardener who's very poor, and a Roman soldier Wants to wants to take the donkey. He, the, the the gardener is using the donkey to carry vegetables to the market, and the Roman soldier wants the wants the donkey, and the uh, the gardener doesn't speak Latin uh, or not not well, so he's he's abused and mistreated. You know, even worse than he would be anyway, uh, because of his inability 
inability to speak the language of the ruling masters of the Roman Empire. Do you think we are any better now, Peter? I mean, you have studied this a lot. So uh, do you think we are any better in modern times? Well, you know, human nature changes very slowly, but it does change. And culture clearly plays a role in changing it. And I do think that a lot of, uh, you know, thinking about ethical issues is better. That is, um, for example, as I said, we, we, we don't officially allow slavery. And uh, if things are exposed, like what the Roman soldier did to the market gardener, um, that would then lead to some discipline against the soldier, as just as when police brutality and, and police murder, in fact, uh, against African-Americans is captured on video and exposed, then the judicial process comes into action. And at least, you know, now, now it seems like it deals severe sentences to the abusers and the murderers, um, which I don't think, you know, would have been very likely to happen in, in, in those times, even apart from the fact that they didn't have video cameras, of course. So, um, I think, I think to some extent, yes, um, we we do make progress, um, and, uh, and otherwise that I've already mentioned. Uh, but you know, definitely there are human beings today who, if they were not in the public eye, if they could get away with it, would do things to the lower groups um, just as just as brutally as. Um, people were doing in, in Roman times. Yeah, it seems more sophisticated, um, but um, at, at the heart of it, at least from my perspective, it appears similar. Uh, as they say in the US, you know, um, corruption, uh, if you're really doing, you know, doing corruption, then you deal with millions of dollars, you know, you don't deal with thousands of dollars because that is a sure way to get caught. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. right. Hundreds of millions of dollars of corruption. Um, and so in, in some sense, it's more sophisticated. It's, it's a higher scale uh, problem, but I don't know if, it, if anything really has changed uh, ultimately. Um, you know, we have some cosmetic aspects around it. Um, we talk about it. Um, uh, and sometimes we catch some people doing bad things. But but there are hundreds of those things that go uncaught. Nobody was around with a video camera. Yes. Oh, that's, that's unfortunately true. Um, yes, we... Uh... We still have a lot of problems, and as I say, there are certainly plenty of people who do bad things when they can get away with it. Um, all the same, I think, and in fact, it's interesting, reading The Golden Ass, you see the concerns for security um, were, I think, a lot greater than, than they are, at least in, in affluent societies today. So, so the, the, the young man who eventually gets turned into the donkey goes to stay with somebody in a, in a town because he's interested in traveling to this region because it's famous for its magic. And uh, the, he stay, he's recommended to stay with a wealthy person who's somebody he knows has recommended him to. But, but you know, you can see the, the people there, they have strong rooms where they keep their silver, uh, they have bars on the doors, they, they, you know, they have to guard their own property. 
um, to an extent that people don't, generally speaking, in you know, the United States or Australia or Europe, um, people can be more relaxed in terms of the, of course, you may still get robbed or burgled, um, but the chances seem to be much smaller than they were. So in that sense, we feel more secure in our persons, I think, than Romans did. Yeah, so, so I want to talk a bit about, um, I mean, this is an area that you have done a um, lot of work, you've written a lot of books, and ethics and treatment of animals. Um, so, so the first book came out in, in, the, in the late 70s? Uh, animal Liberation came out in 1975, so mid-70s. Uh, so Animal Liberation. And, and the fundamental idea here, if I understand this, Peter, is that um, there isn't a distinct difference between humans and animals who can, who can feel pain. And, and hence, um, when we use animals um, for food, for anything, we have to be really aware of that idea. Is that, is that, is that the way to think about it? Yes, um, I'm, I'm not exactly saying that there are no differences or that there aren't important differences, but what I am saying is that the differences are not such that we are entitled to think that the pains or suffering of non-human animals uh, don't count or even that they are not as important as the pains of human beings simply because these are not members of our species. I think you know, that's the, the attitude that I'm challenging here is the idea that all humans are in this higher moral status sphere. That is that all humans have rights, human rights we talk about, um, that all humans are equal in some important sense. And then there are these non-human animals who don't have rights, who are not our equals uh, and, um, you know, okay, most people would say, well, you shouldn't be cruel to them just for the fun of it, but we're entitled to use them to meet our interests, like to produce cheap meat, eggs, milk, and so on. Uh, and that's what I'm objecting to. I'm, I'm saying, well, you know, yes, we're different. We have different interests, at least most humans do. Most humans are you know, capable of thinking about the world in a way that non-human animals are not. But when it comes to pain or suffering uh, or enjoying your life, uh, non-human animals are capable of, of all of those things. And we shouldn't say that the pain of an animal is less significant than the pain of a human uh, because if it's not a human, it doesn't count. Um, that's really, I think, the attitude that in practice we work with. We couldn't have factory farms or we couldn't do the things we do to animals in laboratories uh, if we gave serious consideration to their interests and uh, we are not justified in uh, denying them that serious consideration. So, so for an external observer though, Peter, and I was wondering, this is how sort of the system is set up, isn't it? I mean, we have prey, we have predators, you know, every animal kills other animal, uh, not every, but uh, a large number of them. Uh, isn't isn't that sort of how the system is set up from an external observer's perspective? Well, I mean, 
yes, you know, maybe it is, but so what, right? I mean, it's the system has also been that dominant races of humans uh, killed or, or enslaved other races of humans. Um, the system has also been that men being physically stronger than women dominated women and uh, ruled over them and made them their possessions. Um, there's no moral lessons to be learnt from uh, the fact that uh, evolution set up a system like that. Uh, we resist that in many other respects. We, you know, we've been talking about whether there's moral progress. We're certainly trying to make progress beyond uh, that system of might makes right. And uh, if we can do it uh, for the races and the sexes, then why can't we do it for the species? Right, so um, th there is really no natural way to to um, to make that effective, right? In other words, if the objective function of the system is very simple, it is you know sort of replication and sustenance, so to speak. Uh, then we have you know bunch of things in the system that is basically trying to replicate themselves or pass on their genes. Um, that is sort of how the world is, appears to be behaving. Um, but are we saying that we have sort of broken out of that context? We, have, we can see things a lot different? Yes, that's, that's correct. Um, the, this system, which I agree is a system of, of replication, uh, survival and reproduction um, has given rise to beings who are self-aware, uh, who can accumulate knowledge, including the knowledge of evolution itself. And uh, we can make ethical choices. And uh, we are making ethical choices all the time that are not simply uh, saying, well, you know, let the system continue in, in, in the sense of uh, let's you know, see who can replicate themselves better. That's, we, we don't set that as a goal. Um, we have a lot of other goals um, to try to make things work better, um, better in accordance with a set of values that we have. And you know, I've talked about the values that I hold, the utilitarian values. Obviously, we can discuss values, um, but, but that's what we're trying to do, I think. We're trying to uh, at least soften the edges of the system um, in terms of the values that we hold. Yeah, I mean, the question in my mind uh, is still, is it possible for some actors in the system, given its objective function, can actually change the system? Uh, because objective function appears fairly simplistic and it has remained simplistic and stable for millions of years. Yeah, well, but we, we are changing it in various ways. You know, now it, it may be that you could see that in still in terms of, of replication, but it's not replication in the way that has existed previously. That is, um, how many children do you have and how many of those children survive to have their own children? Um, humans make all kinds of choices. Some humans have chosen to be celibate for a variety of reasons, often religious reasons. Um, some humans have chosen to have uh, fewer children than they could have, even though 
they could provide for those children and children could grow up and have more children themselves. So um, we, we do make those choices as individuals all the time. Uh, and we also make these choices as societies. Uh, we tend to be kinder than the uh, pure naked evolutionary system would uh, would suggest in a way. We, we help people who uh, are weak, who have problems with um, reproducing, uh, uh, and we help people who are old and no longer reproducing uh, to have better lives. Uh, and, and we help people who don't have uh, share as many of our genes as others. You know, on the strict evolutionary terms, we would help those uh, who are our kin and we would not help strangers. But in fact, there are a lot of people who do help strangers. Uh, and uh, that also goes contrary to the system that you're describing. That is true. But again, from a, a kind of a total uh, system perspective, we have a billion people earning less than $2 a day. Uh, we had this pandemic um, that um, it's actually very puzzling because you cannot get to a herd immunity, as they call it, from a scientific perspective, till you get about 6 billion people vaccinated. So it is really a non-economic, non-scientific process to get, so we have 200 different countries and every country follows you know, its own policies and some countries try to get to 60%, 70% on their own. It's never going to um, help us manage a pandemic. That's a worldwide problem. And so, you know, so we, we talk about all these things, but it seems to me that um, we are not really set up to solve sort of the systemic problems to the world. Um, we, you know, sort of smooth around it, you know, we talk around it. Um, politicians get elected uh, or not get elected. But at the end of the day, the, the results appear to be the same all around the world. Um, I, I think that's too pessimistic. I agree with a lot of what you say, that we're not set up to deal with global problems. Um, I wrote a book back in uh, 2002 called One World, uh, which had then a new edition called One World Now, just a few years ago, uh, in which I was exactly making that point, that we have global problems. Um, and we don't have the global institutions to handle them. Uh, and you know, the pandemic is certainly one of those global problems, but before the pandemic, we had climate change uh, as one. Uh, there are several that I talk about in the book. And um, you know, we, we do the best we can. Um, and on climate change, obviously, the fact that President Biden replaced President Trump has been a big plus because it's taken the US back into these discussions of climate change and into the Paris Agreement. And I'd say there's a glimmer of hope that we will get control of climate change uh, before it's catastrophic. Um, though I'm not saying more than a glimmer, but under Trump, there was seemed like almost no hope. So um, I think, you know, there are prospects of making progress on the pandemic. Well, I think we will get there. Um, of course, you know, vaccinating people is one way of getting herd immunity. The other way of getting herd immunity is you expose the whole population to the virus 
um, and many of them get ill and some of them die and some of them um, recover. So I think we will eventually get there too, although clearly we could do better if we had um, stronger global cooperation and if the wealthy nations provided the vaccines that are needed for uh, the poorer nations. Um, so I, I do see some changes and, you know, you mentioned a billion people are living on less than $2 a day. In fact, before the pandemic, it had got down to 736 uh, billion, according to the World Bank's estimates. Um, and that, so that was considerable progress. It was actually, you know, if you go back 20 years or something, it was one, one it was over a billion, it was 1.2 billion. <clears throat> so it was coming down. I think now they think it's probably perhaps going up to 800 billion again um, because of the pandemic. But as I say, I hope that it will resume that downward trajectory uh, once the pandemic has passed. Yeah. Um, so I want to touch on a couple of other things that you have thought a lot about. Um, one is race. Um, and yeah, so, you know, from a scientific perspective, there is no race. So we have essentially 8.4 billion people who are almost clones to each other. Uh, National Geographic had a program uh, a few years ago that you can send a saliva sample and it'll tell you where genes came from. And, you know, my family has been in South India forever. I had never traveled out of there. And, and uh, my heat map showed up in Rome, Netherlands, and Spain, um, in addition to uh, North India. Uh, and so do, do you think, so I often wondered if this is an education problem. Um, which is if, if 8 billion people knew they are exact clones to each other, do you think we will <laughs> we'll, we'll advance in our policy prescriptions? Well, well, that's an exaggeration, though, right? We're not exact clones of each other, clearly. Close enough. Um, uh, you know, and I, I mean, the, the, the claim that there is no scientific thing as such thing as race, and it needs to be unpacked a little bit. It's obviously true that the standard popular views of, of race and of who people belong and the idea that they're you know completely genetically different that 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 idea is clearly false and, and quite unscientific um are you still there i've just lost your image um uh, just just one minute uh, peter i think i just give me two seconds okay Can you see me now? Nope. Ah, now I can. Yes, good. You're back. Okay. Sorry. So to resume, um, as I say, the popular idea of race that uh, you know we all quite different is is clearly false. But um, the other view that's often being said that um, there is you know that it's it's um, all entirely social construction is also false. Um, there are on average, you know, genetic differences between races. And that's obvious from the fact that um, different diseases are more likely. Um, I have a, a European Jewish background. Um, I would be more likely to have a child with Tay-Sachs disease than, I, I don't 
know whether Tay-Sachs exists in southern people of southern Indian descent, but my guess is that it probably doesn't. Certainly it doesn't exist uh, to nearly the same extent in uh, Europeans of non-Jewish background. Um, so, you know, there are those differences on average. Um, and uh, so, you know, people, people seize on them and certainly they beat them up into something much larger and more significant than they are. Um, and that is a factor in terms of uh, racism in the community. Uh, I see this as, you know, you were talking about um, evolution and, and what it's given rise to. Um, I think it has given rise to a certain kind of, of xenophobia, that is to the idea that people who look like me, perhaps look like my, my parents, um, uh, I'm more likely to think positively of than people who look different from me. Uh, and, you know, that can be combated socially, of course, and it should be. Um, and when we are used to diverse societies um, with people, a lot of people who look different, um, we're much less likely to have those sorts of xenophobic attitudes. But um, the problem is that uh, unscrupulous politicians can appeal to them. Um, they're still there in some latent form. And we've seen that so often. I mean, obviously, you know, Hitler came to power by appealing to this uh, uh, xenophobic reaction against the, the people who were uh, part of the German community and had been for hundreds of years, the, the Jewish people. Um, uh, but he was still able to appeal to that and stir it up in, um, in Germany. And Donald Trump was able to stir this up um, against uh, immigrants, against uh, you know, the Mexicans who, who he said were all rapists and so on. And uh, that seemed to get some resonance amongst some of the American electorate, incredible as, as that may seem. So, so that's the problem, I think, that um, there, there's, it's not that there's nothing there. It, there is something latently there and uh, it's affected by the society and uh, we need to have a positive environment to uh, minimize it and come as close as possible to eliminating it but it's, it's there for uh, people to stir up when they see an advantage in doing so. Yeah, so, so I was thinking about the scientific basis, Peter. So, um, you know, the race as we see it is a fairly tactical thing, right? So my understanding is that the Homo sapiens went through a bottleneck. We had at some point only 15,000 samples left on Earth. Um, and so, so if you rewind time back sufficiently long, we will see from a scientific perspective, there is no difference. Uh, but it's very difficult for people to internalize because the surface features that we assign so much importance to um, are all highly tactical, uh, but that is what we see. Uh, but that is what actually... Um, prescribes policies, you know, we have 200 different countries. So I want to test this on, on, on you. I think you have a slightly different opinion on this. Uh, you know, I consider myself to be a universalist. I, I would say there are no needs for countries. Uh, countries are really a sort of a segmentation scheme. There is no reason for religions. There is another segmentation scheme. So we have invented all the segmentation schemes to, to sort of segment ourselves into, into something that has really no real meaning or relevance. Uh, I know that you have a slightly different opinion on this. 
Well, um, look, I, I agree that uh, it would be much better if we could have open borders and uh, not have countries or have, you know, and as I said, I wrote this book, One World, which really is advocating uh, global governance. I, I thought it was premature to say a world government, but more institutions of global governance, like um, you know, strengthening the United Nations, like the International Criminal Court, uh, like um, just you know, ways of making, reaching agreements and enforcing agreements on climate change. I think we need all of those sorts of global institutions. Um, and you know, as far as religion is concerned, um, I'm, I'm an atheist and I find it extraordinary that religion does persevere to the extent that it does. But again, I see that as simply something that people want to believe, that they have evolved with this tendency to believe in, in God or something uh, beyond nature that, that we can observe. And I think Richard Dawkins wrote about that quite well. Um, so, uh, you know, to, to a large extent, I'm in agreement with you, but I also, um, and here, I guess I am an incrementalist. I think that uh, for a politician to advocate open borders uh, would be a disaster because um, you know, then the opponents would seize this advantage and, and they would say uh, exactly as Trump did, you know, do you want to be swamped by all of these people who are different from you and you know and, and would say worse things of course than they were different you know starting off with the fact that they were rapists as, as trump did um so uh it's you know to actually advocate this uh, by a serious politician i think is just a recipe for handing over power to the racists and uh, and, and the unscrupulous people who will stir up racism uh and uh that is a disaster, was a disaster for four years under Donald Trump. It's been uh, very bad in some European countries uh, like uh, Hungary and Poland, where autocrats have uh, played the same kind of xenophobic card and have retained power and to some extent popularity. Um, so I think we, you know, we can only do what we can. I think, you know, my goals and yours are probably the same, but I see it as necessary to not get too far ahead of, of where the electorate is on these issues. Do you see a difference in the next generation? Um, you know, uh, so one could argue our generation hasn't really done sufficiently, uh, it hasn't done enough to actually make a difference. But do you see a difference in the next generation, how they approach these problems? No, not really. I mean, I think, you know, people keep saying this, right? Uh, you could say, well, the, the generation of Germans who voted for Hitler um, was, you know, uh, was, was, was a racist generation and, and subsequent ones are not. Um, and certainly, you know, Germany has done more to uh, eliminate that kind of racism than most countries in the aftermath of the war and the, the catastrophe that that meant for Germany. But, you know, does that mean that racism has disappeared in, in the current generation in Germany? No, not really. When, when uh, Angela Merkel uh, opened the borders to Syrian asylum seekers, refugees, um, there was a backlash. Um, there were still some people who were hostile to accepting non-Germans non um, uh, in, into, into Germany. And uh, uh, even she, brave woman as she is, um, had to pull back to some extent. Uh, so I don't 
see it as you know the next generation as being the solution they may hopefully they'll be a little bit better than past generations hopefully we'll make progress generation by generation but but will these xenophobic impulses have been eliminated in the next generation i don't see that as changing so rapidly yeah, so, so I sometimes wonder, uh, Peter, uh, you know, so you have the social media things like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and so on. Um, would we come to a position that we will have races, you know, we'll have a Twitter race, you know, we'll have a Facebook race and so on, um, you know, uh, because that's where that's where all the people are. And yeah, that's where the people are, but in fact, they then segregate themselves, don't they? I mean, you know, that's the problem that you have, you have... Uh, groups on the internet um you know maybe facebook groups or if facebook tries to outlaw them then they'll go somewhere else um you have the the white supremacist groups that will find ways of staying in touch with each other and communicating with each other just as you have the progressive groups um who do that so um now i think that uh there are things that go deeper in our nature than um, your allegiance to facebook or twitter do you think these uh, big um, social networks uh, are to a position that they have to be regulated? Are they? Are yes, they I do think they need to be regulated. And um, it seems to me that one of the problems is that they have uh, rendered the laws that countries have about uh, defamation or, or libel, um, they've rendered them kind of pointless because uh, people can post things and uh, they get circulated. And uh, Facebook itself, let's say, is immune from the libel suit. Uh, quite different from a newspaper, which if a newspaper published an article, even a letter written into the newspaper by someone else uh, that was defamatory, the newspaper would be liable. Um, I, I don't really understand why um, countries haven't passed laws holding that uh, websites that publish defamatory material are themselves, um, you know, uh, can themselves be sued for defamation. Um, I think that would dramatically change the way these websites operate. Uh, it would be more restrictive, of course, but um, I think it would uh, cut out a lot of the nonsense that gets posted on, on websites. Is it the competitive landscape that's issued? I mean, they, they you know, Facebook, for instance, has 1.5 billion people on it. So, you know, from any stretch of the imagination, one could consider that to be a monopoly, uh, but a federal, um, you know, judge that threw out a, a monopoly um, uh, lawsuit against them. Uh, and so, is is that the real issue that they have so much power? They are natural monopolies. They have to be sort of considered to be utilities rather than companies. I'm not sure because, um, you know, the, the point that I just made that people can post defamatory material on Facebook would be the same if there were 10 Facebooks or competitors to Facebooks, uh, all sharing some of that market, but all, all under the same laws and, you know, all allowing people to put on their website that uh, Hillary Clinton is running a pedophile ring out of a pizza shop in Washington, D.C. Right? I mean, no newspaper could publish that. Um, they, you know, they would immediately be sued for millions. Um, but but uh, Facebook and other websites can put that nonsense on it and uh, they're immune. So to me, that's where the problem lies. It's a bit of a slippery slope, isn't it, Peter? I mean, we, we, can we really have, 
have an objective criteria to say X is wrong and Y is right, um, yeah, there's always going to be a gray area there, right? Well, there are certainly gray areas, but I, I think there's no gray area about whether Hillary Clinton has ever run a pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. Um, and if somebody makes such claim, they have to put up evidence to show that it's true. Um, and nobody has put up any such evidence to show that it's true, of course, because it isn't true. So um, I think that's not a gray area at all. And we've had courts deciding that kind of thing for a long time. And uh, there still are defamation cases. They're a little harder to win in the United States than they are, say, here in Australia, where I am. We, we have a defamation, major defamation case going on at the moment being brought by somebody who was an Australian soldier in Afghanistan and uh, lauded as a war hero. Uh, and now there's there's evidence indicating that he uh, may have killed unarmed uh, Afghan prisoners um, and he's suing for defamation. So, I mean, the courts will no doubt adjudicate on that and, and look at the evidence to see what, uh, whether whether they're going to award him damages or not. Um, that's, that's the job of the courts and I think that's how it should be. Yeah, you, you mentioned United Nations. I want to touch on that quickly. Um, so do you think United Nations is sort of antiquated? We have the Security Council with six permanent members. It appears that the job is counting ICBMs and you know making sure uh, it's, not, it's not thrown one way or the other. Uh, but they had no role to play in the management of the pandemic. Um, so you know, those types of structures, are they really needed anymore? I think they still have a useful role. They may not um, be able to do everything that we would like them to do. Um, but I think we're better off having them than not having them. Uh, yes, the, the composition of the Security Council is antiquated because the permanent powers with the veto uh, derives from the victors of the Second World War. Um, and I think that does need change. And there have been various proposals for reforming that. Um, so I think there are specifics that can be changed, but I think we still need the United Nations. In fact, I'd like to see a, a stronger United Nations. Yeah. yeah. I know that you're working on a couple more, I guess, um, editing books or writing books. Uh, I can't quite remember. So, so what are you working on right now? Uh, I'm revising Animal Liberation, which we talked about earlier, which was first published in 1975. Uh, there's a complete revision in 1990, and there are some later editions with minor changes since, but uh, it really needs a full update. So I'm hoping that sometime in 2022, perhaps a completely new, fully revised uh, edition of Animal Liberation will appear. And uh, The Golden Ass, is, is that out already? The Golden Ass is out, yes. That's available, published by Norton in uh, the United States and in the uh, the United Kingdom um, and by uh, uh, text publishing uh, here in Australia and some uh, other translations of my edition will be coming out as well. But yes, um, I hope people will have a look at that. I hope they'll enjoy it. Uh, I think it's the most entertaining book maybe, uh, the lightest book in a sense that I've uh, produced. Um, it's a good read. So uh, I hope people will pick it up and maybe give it to somebody as a present. I think it's, it's beautifully illustrated by the way. I got some uh, uh, Russian illustrators, uh, twin sisters, uh, to provide illustrations for it. Uh, so it's a it's a nice little package. So, so are you teaching this quarter, or 
Not this quarter. I will be teaching again in September. I'm uh, planning to go back for the fall semester uh, to Princeton. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Peter. Thanks so much for spending time. With Thanks me. very much, Neil. It's been it's been good to talk to you. We've ranged pretty widely, but that's always been interesting. A lot of good topics. Thank you. Okay. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.